Um, good morning. So the reading today is Galatians 3, 15 to 25 or 26, depending on where I stop. Um, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Thanks, Amy. Uh, I just want to extend my welcome as well. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and it's great to see you all here this morning. Um, great to be together as a church and to be continuing our series on the book of Galatians. And um, yeah, we're actually, we're six weeks in, Anna said three, and I'd much rather it feel like three weeks and feel like t- 20 or something, because we have been in it for a little bit. And, um, and, and like I said, every week we're really coming to the same idea. We come to this idea of God is a God of grace, that is, he is a God who relates to us not as we deserve, not because we work for it, but because he loves us um, and out of his own kindness. And so every single week we're taking another kind of angle on that idea because it is really the central idea of Christianity. It is, um, it is, the, it is what Christianity has to offer this world, this idea of God being a God of grace through Jesus. So we're going to be jumping into this passage. Um, as Amy just read that for you, you may have just been reading along and feeling like, wow, I don't even know what is going on in this. Different parts of the Bible have different genres. Where we're at today is in the middle of this kind of logical argument that this guy called Paul is spelling out. And so as we dig into his argument today, let's just pray that God would be helping us engage our minds and our hearts um, with his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, and as we um, wrestle with what it is you are saying, what it is you are wanting us to hear what it is you're wanting us to understand, um, and, and what it is that I guess you want to you change in us um, through it. We just ask that you would just give us the attention that we need at this moment, the understanding that we need at this moment, and qu- the quietness of mind that we need, that we might actually hear you speak to us, and that we might understand um, great and marvelous things about you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, back when I was at school, on at least a few occasions, I had teachers refer to me as the class clown, which is a really generous term uh, to, to call someone. I think it, it really kind of validates the position. It makes it sound like there needs to be one, and so someone might as well do it, rather than just saying he's a serial nuisance, which is probably closer to the truth. But um, one of the keys to, I guess, having some longevity as a class clown is to have a bit of an awareness of your, of your different teacher types and how that's maybe going to affect how you, how you take the class. 
So the obvious kind of teacher you're aiming for is the chill teacher. They're the teacher that likes that they like a good joke. They like a bit of uh, um, levity in the classroom. Maybe they you know didn't get much acceptance when they were at school, and so now they're looking for that from kids as an adult. That's kind of what you're really aiming for as a class clown. Where they're just going to let you. They'll just give you free reign to say and do whatever you want. Um, another type of teacher, though, that's definitely more common is the strict teacher. We had a teacher that really summed this up. His name was Mr. Harding, who, as well as having the word hard embedded in his name, which conjured up a, a kind of seriousness, he would carry an umbrella at every day, no matter what the weather. On a day like today, he'd be rocking up with an umbrella, which made you wonder, does he have that to beat children? And so you'd kind of be a bit on guard with him, um, and, and a lot of teachers saying, look, Maybe there's a time and a place just to tone down the jokes, just get through the hour and get out. But probably the most challenging kind of teacher to deal with, um, if, you, if you're trying to make it as a class clown, is the split personality teacher. And there's plenty of those out there who, they'll be kind of fun and games half the time, happy to kind of have a laugh, happy to go along with it, when all of a sudden you'll say something you don't think is that bad, and then bam, detention. And you're a bit uneasy in those circumstances, trying to work out: Is this teacher? Is are they chill? Are they strict? What is going on here? The split personality. Now, I think one of the kind of most common, I guess, caricatures or misunderstandings of God that I think you can you come across, and maybe you're even having yourself at the moment, is to think of God as this split, split personality being. That God is this kind of uncertain kind of character who sometimes is strict, angry, stressful, other times he's a God of love. And I think the most kind of common way of seeing this is when you, you know, if you've had a read of the Bible, where people kind of think of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. The New Testament God is the God of Jesus, of love, of acceptance. He stands up to, to prostitutes. He's on about making everyone one big family. And then you've got the Old Testament God, the God of thou shall nots. The God who writes rules in stone tablets. The God who says no to everything from eating bacon to sewing garments out of wool and linen. And you think, well, if you've got these kind of two portraits of God that you come across as you read the Bible, wh where's the real God in this? And it can cause some, some confusion as you kind of picture God in your mind or as you think about what this God is like. Is he a hard taskmaster or is he a generous God of grace? And I think one of the issues with this is that it can even make God feel like someone that's hard to trust. Because if he kind of switches the way that we maybe think that he does, he can be a hard God to believe in. What we're going to be looking at today in this passage that Amy read out to us is really, I think, Paul digging into this kind of question. What is God really like? And in particular, does God change? Does he kind of flicker between these two identities? Does he, does he start one way and then kind of evolve and change his personality later on? Or is it the case that God is unified and that God has one character, one way of being from the beginning? So that's what we're going to be getting into today. The whole book of Galatians is, is this argument for grace, which I mentioned before, that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. He doesn't make us work for relationship with him, but he gives it generously and from grace. Um, so we're going to be jumping into this now, and the way we're going to do this is we explore Paul's argument is by exploring, I guess, these three kind of movements of kind of what God has done in, in the whole narrative arc of the Bible. We're going to be covering a little bit of ground today, so if you've kind of not, not been in your Old Testament for a while, you can dust it off because we're going to be going back. Because to make sense of what Paul's saying, we need to see that throughout the entire Bible, God is a God of grace. So we're going to be looking at kind of three points, three movements, the promise, the law, and faith as we track through God's restorative plan. So firstly, the promise. 
We're going to get into Galatians in a minute, but to, to really make sense of it, we need to have a bit of context, a bit of back, uh, back understanding that would have been common for the Jews at the time. And we're looking particularly back at the first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and in Genesis 15. And up to this point in Genesis 15, we, we see God create the world with a purpose. We see the introduction of sin as a universal human problem, the consequences of sin being affecting how we relate to God, how we relate to others, how, how, um, how we relate to the world. And we see that God is a God who needs to judge sin because sin is a problem and it's an intrusion. And you see all these in these kind of crazy high-intensity stories that you'll have found if you started reading the Bible from page one. But a few pages in, in Genesis chapter 15, the tempo of the book slows down and it starts to focus in on one man, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and it introduces a narrative that's really going to take us the kind of whole arc of the Bible through Abraham to his descendants and the people of Israel through to Jesus and the beginning of the early church. And so Abraham, who's this kind of first character that gets introduced, was a pretty ordinary sort of guy. He was nomadic, lived in a tent with his, with his wife and, and servants and, and livestock, would travel around. He and his wife were both old, older than an age where you could have children, and God appears to Abram, and he says he's going to give him three things. He says he's going to give him uh, land, a, a, an amazing abundant land to live in. He's going to give him uh, a family and descendants that are more numerous than the stars in the sky. And ultimately, he's going to bless him and his descendants, and through his offspring, he will bless the entire world. It's an, an amazing set of promises that he's given. And it's a good promise, but it's a promise that Abraham wants some certainty around. And so we see this in, uh, in, in chapter 15, where we kind of focus in on this idea of this promise being made. And it picks up in verse 8, where Abram says, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought, all of these, he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's a really weird little bit of the Bible that I've chosen to pull out there. It's, it's kind of strange. Um, Abraham says, how do I know you're telling me the truth about this promise? How do, you know, how do I know you're going to come through with it? God says, bring me these animals. So Abraham gets them. He, God doesn't say what to do with them. So Abraham cuts them in half. And you've got to hope that that's what God had in mind in this instance. If someone asks you to bring like a cow and you come and just slice it down the middle... Um, either you're a madman or you know something that maybe we're kind of missing with what's going on. We in our culture, we've got a procedure for making significant agreements. We, um, we typically sign forms with a signature. Um, and signatures, if you think about it, they're pretty crazy as well. They're not as crazy as cutting an animal in half, but having some pencil or a pen mean you've got to do something is pretty full on as well. So when you have a will or you maybe sign a marriage certificate, you normally sign it, you have witnesses, and that's a way of saying this is set in stone. I'm going to keep my word and I'm going to be held to it. But in the ancient Near East, um, they had a different way of doing it when you had a really kind of um, significant agreement being made. Maybe two kings uh, had come together and, and, and made a peace deal and they needed a way of kind of signifying that they were going to be held to account for what they were promising. They would do this ceremony where you would get some animals, you'd cut them in half and then you'd, with the person you're making an agreement with, you would walk through these slain animals. And the unspoken reality behind this, I guess, ceremony is if either of us break our deal or, or don't live up to our word, let us be like these animals are. Let us be killed. 
It's, it's kind of like blood pact. It's this really serious way of making a significant agreement or covenant and saying this is set in stone. And so that's what makes what happens next in this account with Abraham so unique. And a couple of verses later we see in verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Now what's significant here is, like I just said, normally what would happen is you make a covenant, two people would pass between the animals and you'd each be saying, we're going to do our bit, we'll each do our half, and we're going to make this happen. But what happens in this account is God, signified in this, in this fire, passes between the pieces alone. And it's akin to God saying, I will keep my covenant, I will do this, I will come good with my promises and my grace towards you, but you're not going to be held account to that I am. It's God saying that you're not, you're not having to keep up any half. There's nothing of this on you. It is on me. I'm going to do it. It's a covenant. It's a promise. It's a promise that's set in stone. That's the point that we need to understand from this bit in Genesis. And that's what's going to give us the context to understand what happens in Galatians 3, which we just had read before. Look at what it says from Galatians 3.15. It says, To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And Paul's point here is this. Even with a man-made covenant or agreement, you can't just change it once you've made it. If you go out and you, you know, go on a shopping spree and you sign up to Afterpay and you just scroll down the terms and conditions, click the, the tick box and then buy a bunch of stuff, when they come and ask you for your money a couple of weeks later, you can't just say, I've changed my mind. That's just not how it works. When you've, when you've made an agreement, a man-made agreement, it's still set in stone. And so he's saying, well, how much more for God? How much more for God making a promise that he's not just going to break it? In particular, the word that he's got here is, um, for covenant is the word for a will. So if you think of an inheritance, um, if, you've got, if someone's left some, someone something in their will and they die, even though they're not around to kind of follow it through, we have an acceptance in our culture that you can't just change it. If a, if a grandfather leaves a fortune to be divided by his, his grandchildren and one of them, it turns out, has got an addiction to something like Pokemon cards, the other grandchildren can't just come along and say, look, this guy's going to squander it, he's going to waste it, let's just kind of take his share and give it to ourselves. That's not how, how it works. An inheritance isn't actually based on anything you do, it's not based on you having to work for it. If that is what is in the will, if that is what has been left to you, that is what you get. It's locked in. And so Paul's point here is, God begins his story of redemption. He begins his story of how he's going to look after people and bring them to himself and, and save people with a promise. A promise that he's set in stone. A promise he's not just going to back out of. A promise he's not just going to change. It is, it is done. From the very beginning of the Bible, it is locked in that God will bless and he will do it through his offspring, who Paul says is Jesus, that that is coming and that grace will happen. And so what Paul wants us to see is that from the beginning, from the beginning of the Bible, God is a gracious, promise-keeping God. He doesn't get gracious later on, but he starts that way. And so he says, you've got to keep that in mind when a bit later in the Bible you come to the law. So point two is the law. This is what Paul says in verse 17 of Galatians 3. He says, this is what I mean. 
The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So now a little bit more Bible history to get across the 430 years. Abraham has a son. Abraham's son has a son. Abraham's son's son has 12 sons. And they all go to Egypt where they each have a bunch of kids, have a bunch of kids, 430 years pass, each multiplying every 20 years or so, to the point where you've got a whole nation of people who are enslaved by a pharaoh in Egypt. God comes to them uh, and, and raises up this guy Moses, who I guess second to Abraham is one of the most significant figures in Israel's history. Moses takes these people out of Egypt and frees them. And before they get to this land that they've been promised, they come to a place called Mount Sinai, and they're given a law, which is the subject of all this debate that we've been talking about in the book of Galatians. So it's hundreds of rules, starting in particular with the Ten Commandments, but then a bunch of others covering everything from how to do community life as a nation, to justice issues, to dispute resolution, to cleanliness, to sacrifice. There's this bunch of rules that become this kind of centerpiece in the life of the people of Israel. And so Paul's question is, is this law adding a clause to this original promise that was given 430 years ago. I want you to imagine, I, um, after church, I came over to you and said, hey, look, come over to my place for dinner this week. I'm going to make you a great dinner. I'm going to get a roast on. I've got a bottle of wine that we've been aging in the cellar. We'll crack that. Uh, don't even have to bring anything. We'll have the nibbles. We've got the dessert. We've got the whole lot. Just rock up. Just come over for dinner. Be there at 7 p.m. And so you say, great, and you do that, and you come over, and you ring the doorbell, or open the door, and you see that all of the furniture has been pushed into the middle of the room. There are drop sheets all around the walls and some buckets of paint. And I say to you, look, dinner's coming. It'll be on at 10 if you do this first, but we've got some painting to do. Three hours of painting, and then you get a dinner. You would sense straight away that that is bizarre behavior, but it also is not in the spirit of the promise. A dinner that, which is meant to be a nice gesture and a gift, then having a set of conditions added to it, ruins the whole thing. Any, any promise of a, of a good thing you're going to give someone, if you come along later and say, well, only if, and you add something difficult to that, it cheapens it. And what Paul is asking is, is that what God does when he adds the law? He's done this great promise. You're going to have these descendants. You're going to have this beautiful land. We're going to bless you. We're going to bless the whole world. And then 430 years later, he says, only if. Only if you do this first. What Paul says is no. That's not what God's doing. He's not changing it. He's He's going to do it because of the promise, not because of the law. So that raises a question then, doesn't it? And Paul anticipates the question in, in verse 19 when he says, why then the law? And here's his answer. Why does the law exist if it's not to change this promise? He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now it's a little bit of a strange argument that he's making. He's just saying, well, the law exists because of transgressions or because of sin. And it's not exactly 100% clear from this passage exactly what Paul's thinking when he says this. But there's another part of Paul's writings in the book of Romans where he's making the same argument, but he fleshes it out a little bit more, which I think helps us understand what he's saying. In the book of Romans, similar, it's a letter from Paul just to another group of people, the Romans, he says this in Romans 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So what Paul is saying is a central purpose of this law that is given is that it exposes the sin that we already have in our hearts. He's not saying that the law makes the desire to sin, but it shows what is there. So if you say to yourself, all right, I've got this instruction, don't covet. I'll just go a week without coveting anything, without feeling jealous about anything that anyone else has got going on, without wanting anything I don't already have, just being completely content with my life as it is right now. You try to do that, and you realize you can't. Until you've tried to do it, you don't really realize you're incapable of doing it. But you set out to do that, and you realize that deep down, you're always going to want a bunch of stuff that isn't yours. You're always going to feel jealous or envious of, thing, of other people around you. And so what Paul is saying is that you've got a condition, you've got this sin problem, but the law brings it out. It brings out the, 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 the seriousness and the problem that is already there. Um, it's a bit like one of those ultraviolet lights that you, you, know, you see in TV shows. You, like you've got you know, a hotel room, it's like nice, the bed's made, everything looks good. And then you turn on the UV light and there's like blood splattered across the wall and a murder's happened here. And it was already there, you just couldn't see it. That's what the law is. It shows us the heart problem that we've got. The law isn't a way of making God come good on his promise. It doesn't give life. Being obedient isn't the answer. So Paul says in verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So here he shows this flaw that the Galatians are falling into, this misunderstanding they've got about how the law works. They're thinking that the law is the way you get life. Keeping the law, being obedient, is the way that you generate God's blessings. It's the way that you get good to come, God to come good on his promises. But it's not. It's more of a diagnostic. With all of the COVID craziness over the last few years, like there's been a lot of stockpiling going on, um, if you've done some stockpiling, I'm not here to judge you. Everyone does a little bit of stockpiling here and there. But one of the things that um, people stockpiled was rat tests. When, you know, when you started being able to buy them from the pharmacies or coals, they did put a limit on them. Because people go nuts. They just buy dozens of the thing. And obviously there's a purpose and a reason that you'd want rat tests. But some people were buying them and, and using them with the same like, ferociousness that you'd think that they thought that it would protect them from COVID. There might be this deep down belief that we had that if I just have enough of these things in my closet, and maybe I use one every morning, somehow that will keep the disease away. But we know that's not how they work. They, they're, they're not, your odds of getting COVID don't go up or down depending on whether you use a rat test because the rat test is only going to show it if you've already got it. I think the way that we, we can think of the law is similar to that. You think, if I can just do this, if I just keep the rules, live above average a life, if I you know, don't do any of the really big sins like killing someone, if I just keep myself up there, I'm going to be all right. Whereas Paul is saying, no, that's not what the law is. The law shows you what's already going on. The law shows you that you've got a heart problem, that you can't keep it no matter how hard you would try. And so what you need more than anything else is this promised one that was promised to Abraham, his offspring in Jesus to save you. We don't like often the law because it does remind us of our sin. 
We don't like the feeling of feeling like we've come up short or we've got something wrong with us. And I think that's pretty natural. That's why we'd much prefer to think that the law is something achievable because we don't want to be reminded of our problem. But the reality is having a right view of ourselves is what leads us to an understanding of grace. And author John Stott, when he's writing on this passage, he says this. He says, The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Here's the reality. The, the law, this, this part of the Bible that kind of lays this out for what it was for the people of Israel to live, was to help them see their deep need. To help them see that they couldn't do it on their own and that to wait for a saviour, to wait for Jesus. And the good news for us is that this has come. We're not in this kind of waiting stage feeling bad about ourselves, waiting for God to do something about it. Paul says we're in this new era. We're in the era of faith. Verse 22 says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promises by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In these verses, Paul introduces us to a a metaphor he's going to be using a a lot between now and the end of the book of Galatians, which is the metaphor of of slavery or captivity versus freedom. That's why we've called our series The Freedom of Grace, because that's what grace does. It frees you. And his point is that before Jesus came, the law was just a restricting thing. He uses the example of being imprisoned by it, confined, restricted in a dungeon. Or the example of being under a guardian, like a child who, who wants to do something, but he's just not at a point where they can make their own decisions. And Paul summarizes this is what life is without faith in Jesus. It's restrictive. The only way you can deal with God is a God who says what to do and what not to do. Um, you're, it's, it's this oppressive thing to kind of have this standard that you're not living up to, to be confronted again and again with your own shortcomings. But Paul says that's not what faith does to you. Faith frees you. It frees you. Frees you from being enslaved to the futility of thinking that we can make ourselves right. It frees you from the, the exhausting nature of the uncertainty of, am I good enough? Have I done enough? The anxiety of what does God think of me? And maybe this is the only way of relating to God that you've ever known. Maybe your only way you think about God is is this anxiety-producing being. He's this angry, stern person, being in the sky that is looking down at you with disappointment, wanting more of you. But there's a new way of relating to God, and that's through faith. It's having faith that everything that God has done through history has been moving to this point that we might be able to find life in Jesus, the one that God promised. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That Jesus is the way that God can be known. To believe that when God said to Abraham all those years ago, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless this world. I'm going to bring people to myself and it's not going to depend on you. It's going to depend on me, even to the point of death, even to the point of sacrifice. And to believe that he did it, that he sent Jesus into our world because we have not upheld any end of any bargain, but God was so committed to it that Jesus came and died for us on a cross. That we might know him. So I just want to finish this morning where we started with this question, what is God like? What is the, what is the God that the Bible puts forward that we need to kind of think of and, or, and relate to? Paul's answer is, everything in the Bible points to a God who is graciously generous who is committed at all costs to keeping his promise to bless and to know us. Which means God isn't a God that we need to approach with a sense of confusion or stress or anxiety. Now every week as we look through Galatians, the, the main point is, is the same. That it's grace. It's not about what we do. There is nothing that's left that we need to go out and do this week to get this. We just need to know it. We just need to believe it. That God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. He has kept his promise. And he's not saying, go out this week and do a bunch more stuff. Go out this week and do better. That is not the idea of Galatians. That's why we, after we preach each week, we sing, because that's one of the more fitting things to do. You don't have to go and do anything. You can just enjoy it. You can reflect. You can, you can connect with it. But as a secondary, maybe, kind of application from this week, I want to just ask you, um, are you investing in relationship with God? And particularly around the Bible, I think a lot of us can sometimes feel that when you read the Bible, it doesn't have this effect of showing me a God who loves me and is gracious and good. But Paul's point is that wherever you go in the Bible, there is a through line to Jesus. That it in some way reminds you of your great need for grace and mercy which has been achieved in Jesus. That the God of the Bible is a good and gracious God. And so maybe if, even as Anna was saying before, maybe uh, over the last little while you've kind of slipped off that habit of, of spending time with God in his word, spending time with God in the Bible, I want to encourage you to take that up. Because if what, if what Paul is saying is true, that every part of it will remind you and point you to a God who is gracious and merciful towards you. But sometimes that can be really hard. And like Anna said, we've got those reading plans which are, um, which are on, the, on the resources page of the website. And there's a whole bunch of that go from different parts of the Bible. Some have like longer readings each day, some have shorter, so it's going to be whatever you want to do. I encourage you to go to those and to use them. They're helpful and they actually cultivate in us a sense of what God is really like, which is what we desperately need to know to, to believe this message of grace. And to even use your community groups that you have through the week as a way of encouraging each other towards this end. That the Bible isn't just this kind of hard, just, just this kind of hard old book, but it is the key to understanding a God who loves us. So I want to encourage you towards that end. And if you're someone who's just never read the Bible before, and that's a really daunting thing to consider, we want to help you with that. Alpha, which is what we've been running over these last few weeks and will continue to run, is just a way, like it's in a sense, it's a, an easy way in to starting to, to think about the Bible, to start asking these questions, to start seeing what it has to say about God. And we'd love to invite you along to that journey with us. You can write on the white cards if that is something you want to be joining in with in any way, shape, or form. Right now, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time singing in response to the God who loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that your word points to you as you are, a God who is gracious and a God who has made these great promises which you have fulfilled in Jesus. 
And often we just know because of our hearts you can feel distant and often we can feel like we're just not living up to your standard and we can often feel um, maybe that the answer is that we need to do more. But just once again this week, we, help, we just ask that you would help us see that it has all been done in you. That you are not a God who adds these conditions upon us. You are not a God who um, is withholding grace towards us, but you're a God who is lavishly pouring it out because you love us. Help us know your love for us. Help us live out your love for us. And help us be a people who, are, who can see that and remind ourselves of that in your word each day, that we can hear you speak to us um, and we can see what you, who you are and what you've done. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.